Good morning. Church, you're blessed. So many people have taken this platform this morning demonstrating the ministry that is going on in this church. Don't take that for granted. That's a great thing and good to see. Uh, It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, The weather is slightly less apocalyptic than the last time I was with you. Um, So nice yesterday, I thought I might try my hand at burning pasture. I've never done that before. And, uh, but we live in the age of YouTube, so I YouTube something about burning pasture, and I called the boys. I said, I think I'm going to light the grass on fire. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't see them. We, it was just a call, but I can imagine the looks on their faces. But I just think uh, the juxtaposition of life that keeps us humble, where I stand before you in my fancy tie that you all know that I didn't tie, but... And yesterday in my muck boots with my broken-handled manure scraper trying to put out a fire that I had lit myself. (laughs) Oh, oh my. Good times. Uh, But I am excited to share with you this morning. Uh, I've stated to you in the past that topical sermons always make me a little bit nervous. Uh, I prefer dealing with issues as they arise from the context of the biblical text, but... Um, I just think that it helps to prevent taking Scripture out of context, which, which does happen from time to time. However, today will be a topical message, but we're going to make sure at all costs that we're anchored in God's Word, not simply my thoughts or my particular soapbox. So we're going to be examining a lot of different passages today, so get ready to turn those pages. Um, I have a great desire to convey to you what the Bible says Not simply what people may say about the Bible, but what the Bible actually says. I'm not a great storyteller. I'm quite unoriginal. Uh, My life is fairly mundane, but what is certainly not mundane is what the Bible says and what it means by what it says. We live in an age where the message of Scripture has too often been hijacked or watered down by individual preferences, personal desires, and the all-consuming culture of the self. What do I mean by this? Well, what I mean is that the culture in which we live has infringed upon the purity of the gospel message. In 2005, a couple of sociologists set out to examine the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers from a variety of backgrounds. That would be evangelical, Catholics, Orthodox, etc., And what they found is that American teenagers adhered to a type of pseudo-religion that the sociologists titled moralistic therapeutic deism. We're going to talk about that. That's a lot of big words. But the sociologists narrowed down moralistic therapeutic deism to five basic tenets. And I want you to listen to these right quick and see if this sounds familiar. One... A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's number one. The second thing they determined about this was that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. The third thing they found was the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. So that is what they boiled down from their interviews and their study of the beliefs 
of teenage folk in our country. Does this sound familiar? That's what I would ask. As Rod Dreher states, though superficially Christian, moralistic therapeutic deism is the natural religion of a culture that worships the self and material comfort. And church, I would submit to you that moralistic therapeutic deism in reality is all too often the religion not simply of American teenagers, but of the American adult as well. A God that doesn't bother us much, but is there when we have a problem and certainly gives us heaven in the end. And this is what I mean by the culture hijacking the true message of the gospel. We must not have a partial or piecemeal understanding of the gospel. It is of primary importance for we as Christians to be established in the gospel that we may be confident in our salvation and able to accurately and fully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It is even more important as the days grow increasingly dark. So the title of today's message will be The Two Sides of the Coin of Saving Faith. And we will be discussing the inseparable relationship between saving faith and repentance. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And our passage will be from the book of Acts in chapter 2. So if you want to start turning there, I'm going to give a little context. But the book of Acts, chapter 2, it's going to be quite long. It's verses 22 to 39, and we'll kind of focus in on verse 38. So if we remember what's going on in Acts 2, Jesus has ascended. Um, it is the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest in Jerusalem. So that is one of the feasts that the Jews had where they would all gather into the city together, okay? So you have a big gathering of the Jews into Jerusalem. This is after Jesus has been crucified. This is after Jesus has been resurrected. This is after the ascension. So they're gathered together in Jerusalem at the feast, celebration of Pentecost for the Jews. They're gathered in Jerusalem, and, and we know from Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit is being poured out. We know the story of tongues coming down as fire and the different dialects that are being spoken. And basically what that means is you have Jews coming from everywhere into the city of Jerusalem, and this message they're hearing in their own language. Okay, So when they're talking about tongues in Acts 2, they're talking about true languages that are being expressed in their own dialects. So they're hearing basically the gospel in their own language and they're responding to it and there's this accusation from the Pharisees and others that these people are drunk something's going on here what is happening this this is a strange movement that's going on here and Peter will stand up and he's going to clarify what's happening and then he preaches a remarkable and short sermon and that's where we're going to pick up in verse 22 listen to and I would have the congregation stand as I prepare to read the word of God Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22, and this is again, this is in the middle of Peter's message at Pentecost. He says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, that is the Messiah, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and this is a great question, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Father, we are staggered by your word, and we are grateful for it. We thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you for who Jesus Christ is, what he has accomplished, what he endured on our behalf I pray that your Holy Spirit would reign in this place as we examine your word. Father, knowing that uh, your word will not return void. Father, strengthen us, guide us, help us to have understanding, help us to be affected by the word of God that we go out of here in strength and in encouragement to be lights in this world. Guide and direct us, Father. In Jesus' name, we give you the praise. Amen. So today we're going to be considering the word repentance and how it relates to salvation by faith alone. We will be considering many biblical passages to help root our understanding in rich soil. So we're going to start in the Old Testament. We're kind of going to go chronologically, not exactly. But let's start in the Old Testament, okay? So the word repent in the Old Testament is often translated turn or return, and is generally aimed at the nation of Israel, but it can also be used in reference to individuals. We think of maybe the story of David when his sin with Bathsheba and how Nathan approaches him and calls him to turn from his sin. But the bulk of its usage in the Old Testament is a corporate call to turn from sin to God. And I want that picture in our minds, turning from sin to God, okay? So keep that kind of as a picture in your mind. Let's look at 2 Kings 17.13. And you don't have to turn to every one of these, but 2 Kings 17.13. And listen to what the word says. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Church, God's mercy and desire is for their repentance. And if you look all through the Old Testament, over and over and over again, the prophets are calling the nation to turn back to him. Isaiah 19.22. Isaiah 19.22. 
says this, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return, there's that word again, they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. So here we have in Isaiah 19, God talking about Egypt, that's a Gentile area. Interesting. So he's calling and saying that he's calling them to return and repent. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8 says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation, again, this is the prophet Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it, do to it. We don't see God like that very often. Do you hear what that says? He is intending to bring disaster upon them because of their sin and their reluctance and refusal to repent and to turn back to him. Too often, we, I think today, we see God as some senile grandfather who just kind of is up there and turns a blind eye to everything. Malachi 3.7, I'm almost done with the Old Testament examples, but they, it is replete with these calls to repentance. Malachi 3.7 From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3.7. So again, over and over, we hear this theme, return to me. It is the mercy of God calling them to turn from sin to God. Okay, keep that picture again in your mind. And it is a turning which, if heeded, is followed by blessing. And I want you to understand, and again, this is a mental picture, but it's the idea of turning. It's not a slight change of trajectory. I'm going to get out from behind this. It always makes me nervous. So again, think of walking this way, and, and repentance or turning is not this. I'm going to change my trajectory a little bit here. I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to cut this direction. It is a turn. It is a full about face. I'm going this direction. I've recognized the error of my ways, and I'm turning back this direction, okay? That's a, vis- a, a visual for you. And this is the warp and wolf of the Old Testament narrative. God calling on the nation to repent or turn to him. And those are just a sampling of passages that we could look at. Before we move to the New Testament usage, I think it's good to consider the definition of the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, okay? And I'm going to consider it, and I'm also going to consider a quote from a Bible dictionary related to the word repentance. So as a simple definition of the Greek, repentance means a change of mind. That's a very simplistic definition. A change of mind. It's much richer than that, and we're going to get to it. A change of mind or a turning about generally with the idea of remorse or sorrow. That gives it a little bit more depth, but we're going to go further. Consider this quote from the New International Dictionary of the Bible, and this really captures the essence of the word. So listen to this definition. I think it's spot on in the things that I, multiple things that I have read. This is the most condensed I could find. In the New Testament, repentance and faith are the two sides of the one coin, okay? They are a response to grace. Jesus preached the need for the Jews to repent, 
and required his apostles or disciples to preach repentance to Jews and Gentiles. And I want you to listen to this sentence. Repentance is a profound change of mind involving the changing of the direction of life from that of self-centeredness or sin-centeredness to God or Christ-centeredness. I'm going to read it again. Repentance is a profound change of mind involving the changing of the direction of life from that of self-centeredness or sin-centeredness to God or Christ-centeredness. God's forgiveness is available only to those who are repentant, for only they can receive it, end quote. I heard one Bible teacher say, faith is a free gift, but only an empty hand can grasp it. I like that. Faith is a free gift, but only an empty hand can grasp it, not a hand that holds tightly and clings to sin. Faith and repentance are the effects of regeneration. Both are the gifts of God granted at salvation. And I may also add, there is an initial act followed by continuation. So often we see that in Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, is salvation an instantaneous act? Yes, I believe that's the case. But it is followed by what? It's followed by a life of maturing faith and ongoing repentance and turning from sin and trusting in God. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. If you want a good picture of this, Paul, uh, I believe it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, I think it's 2 to 9, but he, it's basically the introduction to 1 Thessalonians when he's talking about and commending the Thessalonians on their actions as Christian people. And basically he gets to the end and he says, I've used you as an, as an example because you turned from idols, you turned to God from idols to serve God. So that's the idea that you have in 1 Thessalonians. We're not going to touch on that, but that's a good picture if you're looking for what I'm talking about. Turning to God from idols in order to serve the true God is something what Paul says. So moving forward to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the subject chiefly has reference to repentance from sin more on a personal level. And this change of mind involves both a turning from sin and turning to God. I say that over and over and over because that is the picture. So let's turn to Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to give a little context, so if you want to turn there, you'll have time. Matthew chapter 3. If I can get turned there. So remember the context. So there's been really no prophetic utterance in Israel for three to 400 years at this point, okay? Malachi kind of closed out the, the, the prophetic office in the Old Testament, and there's been these hundreds of years of silence in the nation, okay? That's kind of where we're at in, in, in Matthew's gospel. Early in the gospels, we are introduced to John the Baptist, okay? Not John the disciple, and really, if you ever want to trick people with Bible trivia, ask them who the last Old Testament prophet was. M- most people are going to say Malachi because that's kind of the chronologically the last book in the Old Testament. It's actually John. John the Baptist has every trapping of an Old Testament prophet if you read about John the Baptist. He comes on the scene to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. That's what John the Baptist's purpose was. That's what he's coming to fulfill. And he comes out of the wilderness dressed in camel's hair and eating a diet of locusts and honey. I can't wait one day to meet John the Baptist. The dude did not care about what anybody thought of him. He was John the Baptist and he was there to deliver a message and that's what he did. That's what his whole life was about. So he comes out 
of the wilderness and all the people start flocking down to, down to John the Baptist. They're like, what, what's going on here? This guy looks like some type of an Old Testament prophet. What's he gonna be telling us about? And what is John's message? What does Matthew record as the very first word out of John the Baptist's mouth? Let's look at the text, John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter three. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, verse two, what's the first word? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first words recorded out of John the Baptist's mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the Messiah is here and you all are filthy. Take a spiritual bath in preparation for your coming king. That's what John's message is. The Pharisees didn't like that message because they're like, wait a minute, we don't need to take a bath. Who are you telling us to do this? Okay, but that's John's message. First words out of his mouth, repent. Mark 1, flip back a book. Gospel of Mark. Just brief context. Was there an apostle named Mark? Who's John Mark? Who's this guy? Well, he was uh, an amanuensis, a Peter. So while it's called the gospel of Mark, you can just mark it down and know that Mark's gospel is heavily based on Peter's account, okay? So Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. So first recorded message of Jesus by Mark. Listen to this. Now, after John was arrested, talking about John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. So much there. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, I am bringing in and initiating the kingdom of God with my arrival. I'm here. Huge statement by Jesus. What does Jesus say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Just an FYI, just for clarification, that is not an invitation. That's not an invitation. It is an imperative. It is a command. It is not a helpless plea. It is a type of warning. Repent and believe the gospel. So Mark records some of Jesus' first words in his public ministry. Let's look at some of his last words. Flip on over to Luke. I said we're going to be flipping lots of pages. Luke 24, starting at verse 44. So we've had the message of John the Baptist. We've had the early message of Jesus in his public ministry when he's initiating his public ministry. This is Luke, the physician, recording in his gospel some of Jesus' last words on this earth. Luke 24, 44 says this, then he said to them, this is Jesus, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It's quite a message. 
You might ask, is there any such thing as faith or belief without repentance? That's a good question. You might ask that question. Well, can there be faith apart from repentance? John chapter 2, going through the Gospels. Again, you don't have to turn to every one of these. The, 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 the passage is John 2, 23 and 24. This passage should get all of our attention, okay? This should get our attention, not to be fearful, but we need to pay attention to John 2, 23 and 24. Okay, Jesus is starting his public ministry. There are people flocking around him for his message. Listen to what it says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, listen to the words used here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. I can't dig too deeply because of time, but there is a suggestion here that mere intellectual recognition did not satisfy Jesus, okay? I think we can at least get that assumption from John 2. Mere intellectual recognition did not satisfy Jesus. There is evidence that the people recognized him as the Messiah. Do you understand what he's saying? They recognized him as who he was, but perhaps were not willing to repent or commit themselves to him. And it makes me think of some of the statements that James states in his letter. We don't have to turn there, but the book of James, you you will know it immediately. Faith without works is dead, okay? James 2.19 said this. I think it goes right along with John 2 here. Listen to what James says in 2.19. He's talking to hearers. Listen to what he says. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Beloved, the demons of hell have all the right theology. They know who Jesus is. What they lack is the renewed heart that would allow them to bow a knee and turn from their sin in repentance. We must keep that in our minds. We've seen the message of John the Baptist. We've heard from Jesus. What do the apostles say in the period of the early church? We know one thing they say because we just read it in Acts 2. Let's return back to Acts. We're going to go through a few New Testament passages related to this. We already dealt with ours in, in 2 and 38. When the, whenever the, the people are convicted at Peter's sermon that he gives, this quick sermon, they're immediately pierced by the Holy Spirit and they say, brothers, what do we do? In other words, Peter, I understand what you're saying. What do I do? And we know what Peter said. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We have the idea of repentance. Baptism is that outward expression of faith in Jesus Christ, so we have them linked together. Acts eleven eighteen. that's my next spot. Acts eleven eighteen. so the context of Acts 11 is the, is the gospel coming to Cornelius' household. Cornelius is a Gentile, okay? So we have this new thing in the church where the gospel is being presented and accepted by the Gentiles. That's what we're talking about in Acts 11. 
Peter is relaying this information back to the church of Jerusalem that, hey, the Gentiles are hearing the gospel and they're responding to it. What do we do? <laughs> is basically what, what they're talking about. The Jews were a little bit reluctant for this, okay, at the, at, at the, in the uh, Jerusalem church. But listen to what Peter says in, in Acts eleven seventeen 17 and 18. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance in this passage appears to be almost synonymous with salvation. And what a blessing it is for us to hear that. The idea of the gospel coming to the Gentiles. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Here we have Paul. Okay, Acts 17, Paul is at the Areopagus. He's talking to the men of Athens. He's got them gathered together there. He's looking at their different things saying... I see all these things that you have for, for all of these gods. Let me tell you about the true God is basically what Paul's saying. And here, here's what he says in 30 and 31. And he's talking again to the, uh, to, to the Athenians here. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's message to the Athenians was repent. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Acts 20, 17 to 21. Listen to this. Here's Paul again to the Ephesian elders, starting at verse 17 of chapter 20. Now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in the public and from house, from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There we have the ideas of repentance and faith linked. So in the Old Testament, we have a returning to obedience to the law. Here we have Paul talking about the importance of, of repentance and faith and turning to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Not a turning back to the law, but a turning to Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the law. Another passage we could look at is 2 Corinthians 7.10. I'm not going to turn there if you want to write that down. 2 Corinthians 7.10 is another mention by Paul. Peter in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter's getting this information. They're, they're like, what has taken God so long to come and do what he said he was going to do? That's what they're saying to Peter. We're starting to have doubts about this. You talk about how Jesus said he's going to come and, make, and, and bring judgment. What is happening? Because we're getting ready to, to suffer all of this terrible persecution. Listen to what Peter says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, synonymous with salvation. On and on and on, we have the idea of turning from sin to God linked with faith. Okay? That's the message. 
of today. What are some takeaways? What can we conclude about this message of repentance? Several things. One, it is something that God grants. True repentance is a gift from God linked with faith. It is a fruit or an evidence of regeneration. We can look at John 3 and Jesus is talking in John 3 about being born again and how the spirit moves where it will and this idea of being regenerated and the fruit or evidence of this regeneration is faith and repentance. Who granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life in Acts 11, you remember? Who granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life? God says it, part of the verse. God did it. Godly repentance is not something that we muster up in the flesh. It is a gracious gift of God to those who are his. Second thing, it is necessary for salvation. In fact, we saw in a couple of places where the actual word is used as a synonym for salvation. Turning from sin, repenting, is a necessary component of genuine faith. I'll say that again. Turning from sin or repenting is a necessary component of genuine faith. Is that perhaps what the people in John 2 were lacking? It said they believed in his name, but it also said Jesus on his part was not willing to commit himself to them because he knew all men. Is that what they were, were lacking in their lives? They, they, they recognized who Jesus was, but there was no desire in their heart to repent and follow after him. They believed, but were they unwilling to repent? Did they have a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh is another way we might put that. Third thing, repentance is a command. God commands all to repent and believe the gospel. I don't want to be controversial, but we need to be careful with the invitation mindset I don't want to dig too deep. I understand what what that means. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. And I don't mean that we need to go around breathing fire and swinging Bibles at people. But we need to be cautious of the invitation mindset. Sign a card. Raise your hand. We need to graciously and accurately present the gospel If you have had the truth presented to you, I say, repent and believe the gospel. Do not wait. It is a command. As Paul told the Athenians, God overlooked this time of ignorance. Now he has sent his own son to die. Repent. And believe the gospel. Turn to him. He's waiting there to embrace you. So the question is, do you possess the coin of salvation? Have you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Are you turning your back on sin? Are you confessing sin to God? Or are you walking around saying, well, I believe in who Jesus is. Remember the demons of hell believe in who Jesus is but they are not about to bow a knee to him in saving faith and repentance. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That is Jesus Christ. Church, I have no doubt that so many of you hearing my voice right now have come to a saving knowledge of the truth and placed your faith in Christ. You have turned from sin by the mercy of Christ to God. This message of repentance should be always on our lips. There are no doubt family members and friends who need to understand the gospel and God's command to repent and believe the gospel. Just look at the state of a nation and a world that has turned their backs to God. Violence, bloodshed, confusion, unspeakable evil. Well, some may say, Aaron, this message of repentance is convicting. If you're feeling convicted today, either as a believer or unbeliever, thank God for the Holy Spirit who is tapping you on the shoulder. That is a grace of God being extended to you. It's not a bony finger, but an offer to be embraced by a gentle Savior who in all ways has been tempted as we, yet was without sin for our everlasting benefit. Church, there's a day coming when repentance will no longer be open to humanity. When faith becomes sight, the game will be fixed. We will either stand before the living God clothed in our own righteousness or by faith evidenced by repentance, we will stand before him clothed in the righteousness of his son. Repentance from sin is not an option. A repentant heart is the evidence of genuine faith. We cannot claim to be his and walk in constant open rebellion to him. Do we sin? Oh boy, absolutely and often, but it is no longer our way of life. Someone may say, Aaron, is this some kind of sinless perfection you're preaching? No, absolutely not. It's what I described a couple weeks ago as a stumbling forward. Sin is with us in this body of flesh, but we are no longer a slave to it, church. Take heart. John, talking about John the disciple, provides such a great comfort to us in his first letter, his epistle, 1 John, chapter 1 and verse 9, when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that phrase is in a continuous form. In other words, if we go on confessing our sins, he is faithful to keep on cleansing us. What a savior we serve. Repentance boiled down results in a changed life. A life lived in obedience to God, which as Paul reminds us, is nothing more than our spiritual service of worship for what God has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we don't have words. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We thank you for your grace that is extended towards us in granting to your people a heart of flesh to believe the gospel message and to turn from our sin to you. Father, we pray that the same spirit that was involved when this word was written, will affect our very hearts this day. 
to give us a desire to walk in repentance, to walk in obedience, that we may go out in this world that is growing darker and darker and darker and shine the light. As Jesus said, nobody lights a lamp and sticks it under a bushel. Father, help our lights to so shine before men and women in our day that we interact with on a continual basis that they see the gospel not only being spoken of but lived out in our lives. I thank you for the compassion of a Savior who can relate to our needs, who was tempted in all ways as we are but was yet without sin. What a blessing. Father, help us go out in confidence, in humility, in comfort, knowing of your love for us, knowing for the hope and the promises that await us. Pray that your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.